Welcome to Lakewood Sermon Podcast. We're glad you're here, and we'd like to invite you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 online at lakewoodok.com slash live. Or we'd also love to see you in person at our campus in McAllister. Someone's watching online with us right now, too, and I appreciate that. <laughs> oh, welcome. We're glad you're here. Oh, man, it's so good to, good to see you. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for playing the piano during communion. That was beautiful. Thank you so much. Well, we're really glad uh, that you're here. We're glad that we get to come together and that we get to worship together. This week, we're starting a new series through 2 Timothy. And uh, one of the amazing, amazing things about 2 Timothy is it's actually some of the rat- last writings of Paul before he's executed. Yes. <laughs> it's one of the last writings of Paul before he is executed. And so that got me thinking this week about last words and about last things that we say. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be handed a, uh, an article this, uh, a few weeks ago that talked about uh, epitaphs, or uh, uh, things that are written on tombstones. And there's a couple that I, I wanted to share with you today that I just thought were kind of funny. Like in a Georgia cemetery, there's one that says, I told you I was sick. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's plenty of these, but on the grave of Ezekiel Akel in uh, in Nova Scotia, it says, Here lies Ezekiel Akel, age 102, the good die young. Give it a second. Um, there's one that says, Here lies Johnny Yeast, pardon me for not rising. Oh, I know. <laughs> Here's the, here lies the body of Jonathan Blake, he stepped on the gas instead of the brake. And my favorite of the day is, uh, on, it's a grave um, from the 1800s that's in Nantucket, Massachusetts. It says, under the sod, under the trees, lies the body of Jonathan Pease. He's not here, there's only the pod. Pease shelled out and went to God. <laughs> oh, that was pretty good. Uh, <laughs> but we're starting this new series about last words. And I know uh, what's written on a tombstone, is, those are funny and stuff, but really our last words, those are important. In fact, whenever we study scripture, we talk about this, that at the final things that the, that the writers say are usually very important. They're usually summaries of like the, hey, if you get nothing else, make sure you get this. And so today we're looking into the book of 2 Timothy, where the entire book is Paul's last words. So we're going to dive into that uh, together uh, today. But before we go any further, let's stop, let's pray, let's ask God to speak that we could hear him. Let's pray. Jesus we love you, and we're very excited for what you were doing and what, uh, what you want to teach us from Second Timothy. God, I ask that you would speak and that we would hear you. Uh, Holy Spirit, please take these words and put them into action. Please help us to fan and to flame the Spirit in our hearts. God, thank you for uh, your provision and the way you direct us. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So let's, let's set the stage just a little bit. Paul is in prison, which for Paul, that's kind of a shocker. Not really. Um, he spends a lot of time in prison. But Paul's in prison for the second time in Rome, which is interesting because uh, if you remember earlier, uh, as we follow Paul's life, we see that he has a strong desire to go to Rome. In the letter he wrote to the church in Rome, he expresses this in Romans 1, 9 through 10. He says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking somehow 
by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Uh, Paul really wanted to go to Rome. But Paul's path to Rome wasn't exactly how he pictured it was going to be. Paul ends up being arrested in Jerusalem. And then he spends over two years in prison. After being put before a Roman governor, uh, he he spends two years in prison. When a new governor comes in, uh, Paul again goes before the tribunal. And when he has the opportunity to speak, Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. And so the governor says, if you've appealed to Caesar, so to Caesar you will go. And so he puts him on a ship. And we're fast forwarding, and he's, he's on a ship to Rome. And this big storm comes up, and he finds himself shipwrecked on the island of Malta. And then after a little bit of being there, he puts him back and he gets back on a ship and then he comes into Rome, not as a missionary, but as a prisoner. But it's not that bad. Um, I mean, we'll, we'll say it this way first, though. Because Paul does come in a way that he doesn't expect. And the first point of the day is that your plans and God's purpose will rarely, rarely look the same. Paul begged God to be able to go to Rome. He didn't see his way going through shipwrecks and prison and coming in like that. He didn't expect that, but at the same time, it wasn't all bad. See, uh, Paul stayed in a rented home while he was living in Rome. He had visitors that came and went freely. Uh, He wrote a bunch of letters, a lot of which we study and read today. No one wants to be a prisoner, but if you have to be one, it's not too shabby. But now we're going to fast forward a little bit, and we're going to see Paul once again as a prisoner of Rome, but this time it's different. He's not in a rented house. We see him in a prison cell. And we're going to look at his own words to see what he's experiencing. So we're going to start in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8-9. through 9. It says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. And then in 2 Timothy 4.13, When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. In 2 Timothy 4.9-11, Do your best to come to me soon, for Damas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. And in 2 Timothy 4.16, At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. So from that, we get this, that Paul is chained. He's asking for a cloak. He's cold. He's chained. He's cold. He's been deserted by his friends. He's lonely. This is, the in, this is where we find Paul this time in prison. It's not the experience he had before. He's in a dungeon. He's chained. He's cold. He's deserted. But we also know this, too. Paul's waiting for death. In 2 Timothy 4, 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. So he's chained, he's cold, he's lonely, he's waiting for death. And in that state, he reaches out to Timothy. So who's Timothy? Why does he get the last letter of Paul? Why is it addressed to him? Romans 16, 21 gives us a little bit of a look. It says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So to Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. 
So we know that he's a fellow worker with Paul. Okay, so he's a fellow worker. In fact, Paul even eventually leaves Timothy in Ephesus to try to sort through some of the problems the church in Ephesus is having. Um, but he's closer to Paul than just a fellow worker. We see in Philippians 2, 19 through 20, Paul says, in hope, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served me with the gospel. So Timothy is much more than just a fellow worker. He's like a son to Paul. So Paul, in his last little bit of time in this world, while he's preparing to die, he reaches out to Timothy to impart some final wisdom as a father would to a son. And as a father would to a son, he hopes to give that wisdom to Timothy so that Timothy might continue where Paul is leaving off. We've looked at many different books of the Bible, and we talked about this. Whenever we get to final words, it's important. It's the part that we listen to, uh, because it's one of those things to where it's like, you know, if you hear nothing else, hear this. Where we lean in, and we hope to drink deep. But the thing is with 2 Timothy, the entire letter is Paul's last words. He is last imparting of wisdom that he gives to his spiritual son, Timothy, so that he continue his work after he's gone. This is condensed. This is a lot of stuff. And Paul is expressing all of this to Timothy. So if I can, let me stop. Let's stop right now and let me encourage you. Lean into this. Lean in. Listen hard. Drink deep. In fact, let's take one more second and let's stop. And let's ask God to speak that we may hear him. So that's got to be clear, <laughs> that can break through all of our fog, that we can hear his words as expressed through Paul at the end of his life. Let's stop one more time. Let's pray. Uh, God, please help us to lean in. Holy Spirit, speak to us in words that we can hear. Help us to drink deep from your word today. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to take time over the next six weeks to unpack uh, 2 Timothy. uh, But we're going to start today by just reading from the Word. So it's not going to be up on screen this time, though, because I want you just to hear it first. We're going to go through it. We're going to study it. But I just want you to take a moment to hear it. So if you want to, close your eyes. If you don't, just whatever you need to do to be able to hear these words. We're going to be in 1 Timothy, starting in uh, chapter 1, in verse 3. Remember, this is, I'm going to say, as a dying father talking to his son. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in prayers, day and night. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt, dwelt first and your grandmother Lois, and your mother Eunice, and now, I'm sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power, and of love, and of self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of this testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, 
but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until the day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit that's entrusted to you. This is the word of Paul to Timothy. But realize this is also the word of God to you. Paul intended this to be read by much more than Timothy, and today we get to see how this applies to us as well. So we're going to take a second. Let's look at some of the statements that we just went through in this passage. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, it says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Paul reminds Timothy of the long line of faith that existed before him, that extends out before him. And we see throughout the entire Old Testament Testament that the Israelites get in trouble when they forget that, right? When they forget that God has brought them this far. And we see that it's really important for people to remember who God is and what God has done. And so Paul starts this by saying, remember your lineage. He says, remember what's the faith of your grandmother. Remember the faith of your mother. Remember the faith that now dwells inside of you. And then he gives them this charge to fan the flame. See, Paul's in prison in Rome. He's in prison under the order of Nero. Now, Nero is famous or maybe infamous uh, for being the emperor that started the uh, oppression uh, or the persecution of Christians across the entire Roman Empire, which basically was the entire known world. Paul himself was about to die as a part of that persecution. And what he says to Timothy is that the days ahead are dark. They are filled with pain and struggle. So what do you do in times of this? You remember the faith of your grandmother. You remember the faith of your mother. You re- You hold on to the faith that is inside of you. And then he says, and therefore, fan the flame. And here's the crazy part. If you're a believer in Jesus, you have this spark. We all have this spark. And if you've seen anything about wildfires in California and Colorado, sparks can be dangerous. Sparks can get out of control very quickly in the right scenarios. And we have the spark inside of us. It's the Holy Spirit of God that has been entrusted to us. And this spark has the potential of unlimited power, the power of God, if we would but flame it or fan it. But don't get me wrong. It's not that we empower the Holy Spirit. 
but we have this beautiful gift of free will from the Father. And when we finally relent our bodies and offer them up as living sacrifices like we're called to in Romans 12.1, that spark turns into a flame that does more through us than we could ever do on our own. The spark is there. It's ready to go out of control in, in, in his church, in his people, in you. It leads us to our next point, though, that fanning the flame requires us to accept Christ's lordship and the Holy Spirit's guidance. Really, it requires us to be able to say, God, whatever you want, I'm all for it. God, I don't want to go there, but you're telling me to go there, I'll do it. God, I know that... I've got these strongholds in my heart, but if you're telling me to tear down these walls and you're willing to do it through me, then okay, let's go for it. Because I have this spark inside me that I desperately want to be a flame. Because so many days I feel like I'm just pouring water on the spark and trying, trying to get it covered up. But the truth is, is that that spark is desperate to be the flame in my life, to go out and do amazing things that are well beyond my control or my ability to predict. And Paul tells Timothy here to fan that flame and let it get out of control. And knowing what happens in the church after this, it's pretty amazing because that's what happens. It gets out of control because God does incredible things through his people, including potentially you, when they submit themselves over to the will of God. But then look at this next verse. Paul says, Timothy, You need to fan the flame. But then he says this in verse 7. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Paul is telling Timothy, the journey ahead is dark. And not only is it dark, but Timothy, it's too much for you. That's why 1-7 is so significant because it doesn't say that God made Timothy unafraid. It doesn't say that God put it in Timothy under his own steam to be able to conquer all of his weaknesses. What it does say, or that uh, Timothy had the ability to overcome these things on his own, but what it does say is that God did not give us a spirit of fear. Which gives us the power to overcome our fear, our powerlessness, our lack of self-control, not because we are enough, but because God gave us the Spirit who is fearless, who is powerful, who gives us the power to trust in the fulfillment of God instead of our own stuff. Because we're not enough. You know, that's one of those weird things. You know, there's that thing that sometimes you get in the mirror in the morning and you look at yourself and you're like, you know, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and... People like me. (laughs) But the truth of the gospel is, we stand in front of the, the mirror and we say, I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. But God likes me. And therefore, I am good enough, not because I'm good, but because he's good. I saw this shirt on Facebook the other day. I almost ordered it. It's a picture of Santa. It says, we're all on the naughty list. Uh, But it's the idea of because we can't be good on our own. And it's crazy that as Christians that that's actually good news. But it is. Because we cannot be good on our own. And God says, that's okay. I didn't design you to be good on your own. I designed you to be good because I'm going to give you righteousness. 
And God placed in us the spirit of power that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ who conquered death on our behalf through the, through the power of the spirit. God places on us, we are then able to be bold and then we get to share in the suffering of God. So I know what you're thinking. Maybe, I don't know. This is one of those really good feel-good sermons. Yeah, I'm not enough. Suffering. Yes, I'm so glad I brought a, a guest today with me. <laughs> but the crazy part is that this actually is an encouragement for us. For just as we are called to join Christ in his suffering, we are promised such an eternal joy as to make the worst suffering in this world seem like nothing more than a distant memory. Romans 8.18, we've gone over this a lot lately, says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We have a promise that our suffering is worth it. And so Paul then continues... Because this promise that Christ secured for us, he secured for us in his own life, in his own suffering, in his own death and resurrection. And Paul continues in verse 14. He says, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So we're to fan the flame, we're to be bold, we're to love. But then we're also to join with the Holy Spirit for the work that God has called us to and created us for. And that good deposit is one that we're called to guard. Notice it says guard, not hoard, but guard. Meaning that guarding the integrity of it, but we're not hoarders of it either. Because that deposit is the gospel. The gospel that says that Jesus came to earth that God came to earth, that he lived this perfect life, but then he also allowed himself to be arrested, mocked, ridiculed, beaten, hung on a cross and killed in the most painful and embarrassing way possible at that time, and then buried in a tomb that was borrowed. But this gospel that also says that three days later he rose to life again, and he defeated death. And there's proof after proof after proof that the resurrection happens. But then we see Jesus rise up in the clouds to go and prepare a place for us, showing that he has conquered death, but he's also been risen up to the right hand of the Father, and he is pleading our case for us. Therefore, we can look forward to the promise that he has given us in his time in this world, that we have a guarantee of life that exists well beyond this life. But he also tells us that we have this burden and that that burden is to take this deposit that was entrusted to us and to share it with the world. We have the burden to give the gospel to the world. To share what has been entrusted to us. It's, it's like this. Paul, I'm going to pick on you today. Hi, Paul. Um, but if I gave Paul $100 and I said, Paul, I really need you to take that $100 and I need you to give it to Wayne. And you say, I will do it. At that moment... Paul owes Wayne $100. That's how it works, right? You have the money I gave to you. I asked you to give it to Wayne. Paul, you now owe Wayne $100, right? This is what we experience with the gospel as well. 
because Jesus gives us the good news of our salvation, but he doesn't give it to us for us to hoard it in our hearts. He gives it to us and tells us to give it to the rest of the world. He says it in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We've been entrusted with this incredible gift and then told to give it to everyone else, which means this, that as followers of Jesus Christ, we owe the gospel to everyone. We owe the gospel to the world. We aren't given, or we're, but we're not sent just to wander aimlessly. I remember one time I was on a, I was on a trip with our college and we had an outdated GPS uh, in, our, in our van. And for reasons that we still don't understand, we ended up on Eastside in St. Louis, just driving this church van around some pretty, pretty scary neighborhoods. And like all of these people just driving down the street, not knowing where we were going, not able to get back on the highway, no idea what we're doing. I mean, that, so every time I think of wandering aimlessly, that's what comes into my head. But God hasn't sent us out in the world to just be like, I don't have no idea where I'm going. He gives us the spirit of God who guides us in power and in love and in self-control, which means that we're strong because he is strong for us. That we love like Christ because we've experienced his love and we are compelled to lay ourselves down like him. And we overcome temptation and lay down our pride because the spirit of God is enough to even help us, even help us control ourselves. And I know for me, that's a, that's a big ask. But even as we strive and we fall and we get back up again, we're able to do so because the gospel tells us that even at our worst, even at our worst, we are still loved. Even at our worst, we are still saved. Even at our worst, we are still counted as righteous, precious children of the King of Kings. And this is good news. It's good news that draws us to selfless worship. It should draw us to worship. It should cause us to long for gratitude. And it should put into us a spark that we, a desire to fan that spark into a flame of passion for the understanding that this news is worth sharing. Because there's a world that is dying to hear it, even if they don't know they are. Honestly, the path that's in front of us as a church, the path that's in front of us as individuals, it's too big. It's too daunting. And it costs a great deal to follow it. But I can promise you two things, and Scripture proves me, or proves this to be true. First is this, that on this path, you will not be alone. 2 Timothy 4.18 says it this way, The Lord will rescue me for every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You're not alone. Another great passage that talks about this is actually when Moses uh, commissions Joshua in the Old Testament, it says in Deuteronomy 31.8, it's the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. You will not be alone on this path. And the second promise is this, that it is worth it. 2 Timothy 4.7-8 says it this way, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, 
There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. We have a mission, one that is daunting, one that is costly, but we're not called to do it alone. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and we have the community of his church. That's what we get to do. So if I can give you any, any big, big push for the day, it's this. To fan the flame. Let it get out of control in your life. Allow the Spirit to come in and give you uh, that spirit of power and love. And then finally is this. Step onto the path. There's a great quote from the Lord of the Rings that says, uh, or maybe it's the Hobbit. It's, one of, it's either the Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit, but basically says this. It's a dangerous thing stepping out of your front door because you put one foot in front of the other and you, ne- you have no idea where you're going to end up because eventually you get swept off to adventures all over the place. And I can promise you this, that whenever we follow the will of God, we will end up in places that we never thought we'd be or never thought we'd go, but we'll also be in places that we were created to be. Let's pray. God, we love you. Um, Father, I ask that you would continually work on us, that you would help us to see uh, your calling and your direction. Holy Spirit, please take our hands and guide us, Father. Give us the passion to fan the spark into a flame, Father. Lord, I ask that that would happen inside of Lakewood that we would see your spirit come to life inside this church and to get out of control and we'd just be amazed at what you're doing. God, thank you for calling us to your kingdom. Thank you for allowing us to have the, the guarantee that we are loved and forgiven and chosen. Father, I ask that you continue the work of salvation in us and that you put into us a love for all of your children. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.